I'm Kate, and welcome to the Picture House Podcast, where we discuss the architecture, design, and history of America's early cinemas. We hope that telling the stories of these places and the people associated with them will help you explore their place in our collective memory and our communities today. For today's episode, which is part seven in our series on the movie palace, we'll talk about an architect who may not be as well known as some of the others we discussed, but who was nonetheless prolific and designed some lovely movie theaters. We're looking at Benjamin Marcus Pratica, focusing particularly on his working relationship with the Pantages chain. While Pantages was originally a vaudeville circuit, and many of the theaters that Pratika designed for them were for that purpose, several of the later ones were straight-up movie palaces. In all, Pratika would design more than 20 theaters for Pantages and another 120-odd ones for other theater owners. Today, we'll look at several of the grand movie theaters that Pratika designed in his role as lead architect for Pantages. Benjamin Marcus Dombrowiski was born on December 23, 1889, in Glasgow, to Russian Jewish immigrants who had settled in Scotland. He would take the last name Pratika from his stepfather. He spent his early years in Glasgow, and from the ages of 15 to 20, he apprenticed with architect Robert McFarlane Cameron at the Royal College of Arts in Edinburgh. During those five years, he took enough classes to get bachelor's degrees in both science and fine arts, and upon concluding his five-year apprenticeship, he received a traveling scholarship that would help him find professional work anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world ended up being Seattle, Washington. Pratika arrived there in 1909, and with the experience he had gained in Edinburgh, he was quickly able to find employment as an architectural draftsman. Around 1910, he happened to meet Alexander Pantages. This would be the beginning of a nearly 20-year professional relationship. Greek-born Alexander Pantages, like the Grommans that we discussed last week, got his start in the entertainment business in Dawson City during the Gold Rush. Under Pantages' oversight, Dawson's Orpheum Theater thrived. He ended up in Seattle after the Gold Rush, and in 1902 established a vaudeville theater bearing his name. By 1909, he had expanded to multiple vaudeville houses up and down the West Coast. Eventually, the Pantages' empire would extend from Vancouver to Southern California and as far east as Toronto. Pratika started working directly for Pantages when he was 21. His first commission was Pantages' San Francisco Theater, completed in 1911. The large vaudeville house on Market Street obviously impressed Pantages. Pratika basically became the company architect. He designed all of Pantages' vaudeville houses throughout the 1910s, and when cinema started to proliferate, he designed those too. Pantages Salt Lake City In early December of 1918, Southwest Builder reported that Pratika had completed plans for a Class A theater building to be erected at Salt Lake City by Alexander Pantages of Seattle. By mid-December, ground had been broken and the excavation being done by local contractor P.J. Morin was well underway. The theater would take two years and half a million dollars to complete, finally opening on December 1, 1920. A couple of months after the theater opened, 
the Equipment Service section of Motion Picture News provided a litany of facts and figures about the Pantages, including dimensions. From the Main Street entrance to the back of the stage, the structure is 295 feet long. From the entrance to the lobby is 175 feet. The lobby is 35 by 48 feet, and the foyer is 10 by 88. The auditorium is 95 by 88, and the stage is 30 feet deep and 88 feet wide. It is 68 feet from the orchestra pit to the dome. They also noted that the theater included approximately 10 miles of electrical conduit and roughly 35 miles of wire. The periodical also included some info on the theater's overall appearance. The decorative scheme of the theater is in the period of late Roman and early Italian Renaissance. The color motif throughout is Dubarry Gray to bring out in sharp relief the carved enrichments. The background styling in warm gray tones, the whole highlighted in gold. The fruit and floral enrichment are brought out in natural polychrome colors. The cherubim, the great frieze, the cartouches, the capitals, the columns, and other major enrichments are executed in dull Roman gold burnished with gold highlighting. As with many of the movie palaces, a focal point of the auditorium was a great ceiling dome which had, for its features, in addition to the art glass panel, two figural groups, an allegory of the drama and music on a field of colored sky with four ornamental corner pieces representing a conventional idea of the tragic mask. The whole was multicolored with mosaics of colors and burnt gold encaustic. To paint in encaustic is basically to paint with hot wax. The ceiling and rear balcony walls were done in tones of burnt orange and fawn gray, with conventional panel and frieze decorations, while the balcony ceiling diamond grill panels were burnt orange, the carved ornament being in gray and gold. The curved ceiling panels were in warm gray and the conventional ornamentation. The auditorium wall panels reportedly featured arabesques meant to replicate those in the Sistine Chapel. The auditorium's grandeur was even further enhanced by thousands of special electric lamps concealed in the ornamental plasterwork of the main ceiling. Like several of the theaters we've talked about so far in this series, the Salt Lake Pantages has a bit of interest for the engineers in the audience. In February of 1919, the Minneapolis Steel and Machinery Company, who furnished the structural steel for the Pantages, reported that the structural steel for this building amounts to 100 tons. One heavy truss, 86 foot span, 75 feet deep, weighing 35 tons, supports the roof. As picture palaces got bigger and bigger, and architects and engineers sought to provide the best sight lines and acoustics, structural innovations like this became more and more common. The University of Utah has created a Pantages Theater archive, with many historical photos, original plans, and more. The present-day virtual tour is especially worth checking out. While this archive is really interesting, it unfortunately was born of a bad situation. The Salt Lake Pantages is currently the subject of a big preservation battle, with many contending that the city has been involved in something of a demolition-by-neglect process for many years. While we'll hope for a good outcome, the theater's fate seems murky at present. Pantages, Kansas City 
Another Italian Renaissance Pantages Palace, this one, a combination motion picture and vaudeville theater, was opened in Missouri on August 27, 1921. The building's 178-foot-tall tower brought a bit of Venice to the American Midwest. The upper portion of the tower was done in cream enamel and polychrome terracotta to an apparent aesthetic advantage. And atop the tower was a revolving electrical sign spelling Pantages. The theater's opening, which Pantages himself attended, was greeted by a capacity house. Motion Picture News noted that first-run pictures have found another elaborate home along Movie Row in Kansas City. Pratika's theater cost roughly $900,000 to build. Construction was supervised by J.E. Gilbert, and Anthony Heinsbergen of Seattle oversaw the interior decorations. Heinsbergen, a muralist and decorative painter, was, like Pratika, Alexander Pantages go-to for theater interiors. Motion Picture News briefly profiled the Kansas City Pantages architecture. The foyer and lobby extend back 130 feet to the body of the theater. The house has a seating capacity of 2,200. Besides the main auditorium, there is a balcony, 13 loges, and six boxes on each side of the house. Hundreds of yards of luxurious velvet carpets adorn the corridors and restrooms. A beautiful art glass dome is equipped with special lighting, while the corridor leading to the main body of the theater from the main entrance is equipped with handsome terracotta and mural decorations. A huge mezzanine waiting room, lavishly finished, will accommodate more than 500 persons. The theater also had an interesting electrical feature in the Stanford Continuous Arc Feeds. Made locally in Kansas City, they acted as a barrier against any possible irregularities that might occur in the current, assuring a steady, clear picture at all times. There were a few years at the height of the Depression when the theater closed. Otherwise, it did well as a cinema for most of its relatively short life. Sadly, the Kansas City Pantages was torn down in 1960 for, yeah, you know what I'm going to say, a parking lot. The next couple of Pratika Pantages palaces that we're going to talk about still exist and are both located in California. Pantages, San Francisco. Alexander Pantages first opened a tiny theater in San Francisco in 1908. By the end of 1911, a much more impressive Pratika-designed edifice had been completed on Market Street. As we mentioned earlier, that was actually the first theater Pratika designed for Pantages. For his third and last San Francisco Pantages theater, Pratika would design a Spanish Gothic movie house that was a far cry from the chaste classical mode of his early work. As early as February of 1925, Pratika was preparing plans for a Class A store, office, and theater building at Market, Hyde, and Fulton Streets. In April of 25, architect and engineer reported that the building would be constructed by the local firm of R. McLaren and Company. At that time, the building's cost was estimated at $1 million. The final construction cost of the combination theater, office, and retail building reportedly ended up totaling $3.5 million. But apparently, it was money well spent. 
Motion Picture News praised it as a masterpiece of construction, while Exhibitors Herald lauded it as an architectural feat. Based somewhat on the Cantabrian Cathedral of Leon in northern Spain, Pratica designed a building that was Gothic in composition, loaded with Renaissance ornament. Motion Picture News gushed over the interiors. The foyer is a masterpiece. It is a large anteroom with gray walls, oaken doors, a barrel vault ceiling, laid over with panels in gold and purple covered with intricate arabesques. The hall is in keeping with sunburst medallions overhead done in Byzantine decoration. The auditorium is huge and thoroughly Spanish, in the manner novel hereabouts, with masonry in imitation travertine and limestone with occasional bits of Botticino marble. The organ facade and grillage give an ecclesiastical effect. It is primitive and striking. The designs are robed figures, in framing bold and ornate in extreme. The ceiling is interwoven and done in Moorish colors, the whole supporting a colossal shell for the central light. There are no beams supporting the balcony. Once again, Anthony Heinsbergen contributed greatly to the theater's stunning interior spaces. The San Francisco Pantages had a bit of an oddity, especially when taken in the context of a city who had, not so many years before, experienced a devastating fire. A narrow smoker's loge, just large enough to hold those who would like to smoke while being entertained. Motion Picture News considered it a liberal idea that an enlightened fire commission would allow smoking in theaters. The 2400-seat theater opened on February 20, 1926. It was only a Pantages for a few years, becoming the Orpheum after Pantages broke up his business in 1929. It operated as the Orpheum for decades, and in 1953 the theater was renovated for Citarama, but reverted back to a standard screen by the mid-60s. It was empty for some time, until it was restored in the late 70s and again in the late 90s. Today, it's still the Orpheum, and is one of two San Francisco theaters that hosts Broadway productions. The local landmark case written by Stephen Levin for the Pantages notes that, until the opening of the monumental Art Deco Hollywood Pantages, San Francisco's was by far the largest and most exciting of the circuit's theaters, and is generally regarded as one of Pratika's most significant works. Hollywood Pantages The last Pratika Pantages that we're going to talk about today is actually the last Pratika Pantages. It's also probably the best-known one, and I think for very good reason. As we've talked about in previous episodes, the Art Deco style began to take hold in American architecture in the late 1920s and basically became the go-to style in the 1930s. For the Hollywood Pantages, completed in 1930, Pratika so expertly applied the major tenets of Art Deco that it's actually kind of unbelievable. Of course, we'll describe it here, but I highly recommend you just browse some photos of the theater online, or better yet, go there and go inside if you can. Originally operated by Fox West Coast Theaters under the supervision of Lloyd and Rodney Pantages, the Hollywood Movie Palace was completed at a cost of one and a quarter million dollars and opened as a first-run house on June 4, 1930. 
Motion Picture News thoroughly profiled the theater at that time. Both the exterior and interior carry out the modernistic trend in a complete but subdued manner. The color scheme inside is mainly in black, gold, silver, and henna, while the outside is done in white concrete trimmed with gold-covered iron grills. The outside measurements of the theater show it to be 250 feet long, 150 feet wide, and 120 feet from cellar to roof. The vestibule is done in red Levanto marble. The ticket booth has three windows and is of gold and silver metalwork with a marble base. The grand lobby's walls and pillars are of modern design and of contrasting colors. David Naylor elaborates on the lobby design for us. The coffered barrel vault of the grand lobby rises from the tops of fantastic golden zigzag column capitals. On either side is a wide staircase, and on each side of these staircases are matching stone statues depicting achievements of modern science, aviation, and talking pictures. Off the grand lobby are the lounges and restrooms. The wide foyer has a ceiling done in mural paintings of the modernistic trend. As in the grand lobby, the ceiling is of acoustical plaster. An upper promenade was designed much like the lobby, lined with a series of arches done in black and gold and of modern design. Off from here are the upstairs lounges and restrooms, which are like those on the lower floor, but somewhat smaller. The auditorium was designed around the ability to show widescreen large pictures. In order to do this, the theater had to have a low rear balcony, the height of which permitted full vision of the screen at any point. The Hollywood Pantages seated 2,000 on the main floor and another 1,000 in the balcony, which was split into two 500-seat sections. The 3,000 seats in the Pantages brought LA's total seat count, spread across 176 theaters, to 152,268. 25 theaters in Hollywood counted for a third of that seating capacity. The Pantages velour and mohair seats came in red, blue, and green, and were placed throughout the auditorium in various designs to show off the color effect. They were also placed wide enough apart so that people coming or going will not cause those seated to rise. More than 7,000 square yards of special sound deadening carpet covered the floors of the Pantages auditorium. Its plaster walls and ceilings were designed with the acoustics in mind, to cut down the sound reverberations to a minimum degree. Additional ornamentation in the theater proper included, in David Naylor's words, almost frighteningly ornate organ grills. Pratika's Hollywood Pantages even drew some inspiration from John Eberson's Atmospherics. The auditorium ceiling is sky blue, and beneath it is a suspended false ceiling, which leaves only small portions of the upper part showing through. Special lighting effects have been installed in this ceiling. The candelabra, which weighs over three and a half tons, is of aluminum and glass and is the largest in any Western theater. Blinker star lights have been placed in the ceiling and cloud effect machines also help to give an open sky effect as seen through the openings of the suspended ceiling. Much different from Pratika's earlier theaters, which were done in classical revival styles, 
the Hollywood Pantages was immediately recognized as the Art Deco wonder it was. In an Exhibitor's Herald World special section on recent creations in the theater design, the Pantages was featured among several others as an example of the increased number of theaters erected for popular patronage that yet were strictly modern in design and indicative of architectural trends. The Movie Palace's grand staircase, lounge, foyer, and auditorium were presented photographically in the magazine. At the time, the theater was considered an exemplary execution of Art Deco, and that status has never waned. Today, it's generally regarded as one of the finest examples of Art Deco architecture in all of America. It's also still very much alive as a venue for live shows. If you happen to take the train in the LA area and get off at Hollywood and Vine, the theater greets you as you emerge from the station. As an architect who came up in the vaudeville era, B. Marcus Pratika's default mode arguably leaned toward classical styles. However, his partnership with Alexander Pantages' chain gave Pratika the opportunity to work through the major phases of movie palace design, from those early classical ones to European-inspired revivals to an Art Deco masterpiece. However, he was modest, self-deprecating almost. He once said, I don't think I'm a good architect. I've never been satisfied with any job I've done. I heartily disagree. Pratika proved his mettle during each design era, finishing strong for Pantages with that amazing deco design in the heart of Hollywood. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode, number eight in our Movie Palace series, when we'll head back to New York to explore Lowe's Wonder Theaters. Until then, may your seats be ever in the center 